What's up, podcast listeners? Yep, you guessed it. It's your boy, Matt Baxter, on another great episode of The Matt Baxter Show. I am hanging out with Dr. Giorgio on this episode. And man, this is just a phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal podcast. She has just such an amazing background from being both a practitioner um, as, as a physician, but also being on the administration side in the medical world. Somebody who just, like, you can't even describe some of the impact um, from a healthcare perspective that she's had. Um, she's the currently the chief health officer uh, at Starkey Hearing. Um, she has an amazing background when it comes to hearing loss, when it comes to just medical impact in general. So we dive deep into a lot of different um, pain points, challenges, uh, amazing work that's going on in the healthcare space. And um, I, I just couldn't be prouder to have, couldn't be more proud, excuse me, to have her as a guest in this podcast. Um, Dr. Georgia, I just want to say thank you for the impact. Thank you for being a guest on the show. And thank you for all that you do. If you're somebody who's interested in the medical space, if you're interested in um, the administration side uh, from, from a healthcare perspective, this episode is definitely for you. And I would strongly, strongly, strongly encourage you uh, to reach out, follow along, and uh, uh, stay tuned in everything she has going on. Thanks again. Dr. Georgia, thank you so much for being a guest on this podcast. Excited to have you. Thank you for inviting me. Really looking forward to it. It's going to be a blast. So where in the world are you recording from? I'm recording from Starkey's corporate offices in Eden Prairie, Minnesota, which is one of the suburbs of Minneapolis. Okay. And is that where you're originally from? Is that home? Oh, gosh, no. I was <laughs> born in, <laughs> was that obvious? Um, I was born in Baltimore, Maryland. Okay. And stayed there until I finished medical school and then went to California where I did my training, went into practice, entered the healthcare industry, and then came to Minneapolis for a corporate opportunity. So when you first started, uh, first started down sort of the medical tra uh, track, was that always the goal, always the plan? Was it, you know, I, I, it feels like at least I come from a family that I'm the first Baxter on the male Baxter on my dad's side. That's not a doctor. So it seems like everybody uh, started medical path and I very quickly veered away from it. So what was it? What was kind of the, the, the first step into the medical path for you? Well, we have opposite experiences. My, <laughs> my, my parents are Greek immigrants. Um, they actually didn't even finish high school. And so we didn't even know that it was possible for hmm. someone from a family with our stature to be a physician. But my parents really focused on education. So my older brother and sister both became pharmacists and I became a physician and, um, and it wasn't necessarily because I had always wanted to be a physician. It was it was because my parents really believed in having a skill that would provide us an income, so we wouldn't you know have to suffer like they did. And so we had to either go down a lawyer type of path or a doctor type of path. And I was really good in math and science, and that's what led me to medical school. So much less um, you know much less traditional than maybe some of the stories that you've heard about physicians in the past. No, it's, it's an, uh, I mean, it's an amazing story. And, um, did you have, uh, when you first kind of started going down that path, obviously good at math and science on the school side, when you first sort of got a taste for it, was it always to become like, or I guess, did you want to go surgery route? Did you want to go educational route? Did you want to go, you know, how, what, what was, I guess, obviously your career has evolved from then, but kind of when you first started, what was, what was the original sort of intention of that? I really thought that I was going to be a pediatric orthopedic surgeon. So Good that was you. my early path. And it was because 
the first physician that I met that really inspired me, his name was Dr. Stephen Kopitz, and he was a six foot four Hungarian pediatric orthopedic surgeon who operated on dwarfs who were anywhere wow. between two and four feet tall. And he had such love for them that I was fascinated by what he did. But in retrospect, I was more fascinated by how he interacted with his patients. And so one thing led to another. And I found that I, you know, I didn't want to go into orthopedics for a whole variety of reasons, including my own size, because I'm five three and um you know, it's physically demanding. Um, yeah. But what You're I, in good company. I'm 5'4". <laughs> that's, why, that's why I didn't go down the medical path. <laughs> but what I did adopt from Dr. Kopitz was, was his love of patience. And so yeah. I certainly pulled that into the specialty that I did choose, which was internal medicine. I love that. So uh, kind of walk me through the, the early days of uh, getting into that. Well, I... Um, I really, internal medicine, a lot of people don't know what that is. So for those who are listening, an internist is to an adult what a pediatrician is to a child. And so you see a lot of different symptoms in a wide range of ages and in situations. And um, being a really good internist means that you're really good at putting puzzles together. You're a really good listener and you hear a whole bunch of symptoms and you try to put them together into one diagnosis that solves the answer to one puzzle. I love that. I, um, I love listening. I love listening to people's stories. So um, I, that's the specialty that I selected. And I did my training at a, an affiliate hospital of University of California, San Francisco. So it was a hospital called Mount Zion. That was three years of training. And then I went started an internal medicine practice, but concurrent to that, I was also the medical director of an eating disorders unit at Children's Hospital of San Francisco. And so I had both a specialty practice in eating disorders, frankly, because, um, because I was trained to be able to do that, but I also had a passion for it because of a personal experience. And parallel to that, I had an internal medicine practice. So that's what my practice initially looked like until I transitioned to just doing internal medicine in San Ramon, California, which is uh, just a suburb of San Francisco. Nice. Um, and I mean, obviously, thank you for your work in that space. I can only imagine uh, both some of the positive, beautiful stories that came out of the work and also some probably really difficult ones as well, too, in that space. Um, this is This might be a challenging question, but pro uh, what would be the difference of working with, you know, children and in the, in the uh, eating disorder versus adults? Because I, I would imagine those are two, some similar crossovers, but also vastly different. How do those paths look different? And I guess why in particular did you choose one versus the other? And that might be a challenging question if it is. No, and I want to make sure I hear your question specifically. So is the question, what's the difference in dealing with a child with eating disorders versus an adult with eating disorders? Or is the question, you know, why eating disorders and internal medicine, right? Those are... I guess I'd like the answer to both, but start with the first one. Oh, there's a really big difference in dealing with children with eating disorders or anyone who's a minor, because yeah. there's no question that the family is responsible and you have to work with the family. Uh, they yeah. have legal control, but they have, per, you know, parental influence. And what is really important to know about eating disorders is that 
the individual who is underweight or bulimic throwing up or binge eating, that's the index, that's the index event, if you will. The real right. patient is the entire family. So you have to get the buy-in and um, the trust of the entire family. That's a little different than working with an adult with an eating disorder where their family certainly had a big influence, but they can be much more independent in their decision about how they're gonna move forward in their life. Um, so that's the answer to the first question. The answer to the second question, which is how do you have separate practices between internal medicine and eating disorders? Um, right. I, they, they don't intersect. They're just very different. Internal medicine. Not a whole lot of crossover. Yep. Right. Uh, very general, um, you know, a lot of colds and flus and occasional heart attack here and there, uh, diabetes, um, and eating disorders is, you know, the conditions that I talked about earlier, but I just found I was very stimulated by, uh, by, by both. And I had the opportunity to do both. And being the medical director of an eating disorders unit so early out of my, my residency really gave me a very early foray into being an executive and an administrator in the healthcare industry rather than just a practicing clinician. So I didn't know it at the time, but it really opened the door to um, having a pretty untraditional path as a healthcare executive. Well, and that's one of the things I was going to ask you about. You obviously have sat on a, a, an amazing amount of boards and uh, certainly as a you know practitioner in the space, but also you've more on the administration side. So maybe talk me through a little bit of um, for you, what do you like that's what do you like about both, both on the uh, actual practicing side and then also what do you like on sort of the administration side as well? So let me be clear. I love patients. I mean, I and and sometimes people say to me, don't you miss being a doctor? Every single day, I am a doctor. There is nothing that takes that away from me. And, and I don't treat patients today, but I interact with people in similar ways. Um, so I, but, but being a physician and being in a clinical practice means that you see one person at a time. And if you're not rushing through your day, you might see 15 people a day. Multiply that times five, times 52 weeks, times a 30, 40 year career. That number, if you do the math, is just not as large a number as if you are making decisions that influence 17 million people at a time, which yeah. was the scope of my, uh, the influence that I had when I was the chief medical officer of United Healthcare. And so while I had an arm's length distance from direct patient care when I was there and in other roles that I've had, I knew that decisions were influencing the entire system and populations of people. And I'm really proud of that. I'm really proud yeah, of it. You should be. You should be. Um, we, so I, we probably haven't talked a ton about my background, but I own a, uh, HR tech software solution. We actually service into, uh, quite a few healthcare, uh, providers and it's been fascinating to hear and some of the amazing challenges that so many, uh, healthcare providers from a staffing perspective. And obviously there's been a huge transition from, uh, you know, in-house nurses to traveling nurses. And there seems like a huge shift in that. So um, I, I guess one, is that something kind of similar that you've seen across in some of the, the work that you've done? And then secondly, um, obviously that's a big challenge that we see time and time again, but what are some of the other 
changes in the healthcare landscape that you're seeing, maybe for better or challenges that are arising? We'd love to hear kind of your take on and whatever you feel comfortable sharing. Sure. So my opinion is most informed by my role as the chairman of the board of Children's Hospital and Clinics of Minnesota. So just to put that into perspective, it's one of, uh, you know, just a few independent children's healthcare systems in the United States. It's about a billion dollar system. We have two hospitals, multiple clinics, et cetera. And um, it's through that lens that I see the impact of the industry of COVID on all of the entire employee base, but especially the clinical staff. And um, what I'm seeing, which is really quite concerning to see, is the level of burnout, the level of dissatisfaction among clinicians. Um, You know, it's a profession where you're so proud of going into work and treating patients every day. And over the last several years, it almost seems like the world has turned against clinicians, at least in some environments. And it's hard going to work every day. So children's along with so many, you know, almost every hospital in the United States has been plagued by workforce issues, staffing issues, and has brought in the traveling nurses, which in turn has increased operational costs. And then that it creates a domino effect of issues. So it's a, it's a concerning problem that I, um, that I think every hospital is dealing with, but I will highlight that it's such a big problem that just a few months ago, the Surgeon General of the United States put out an advisory around uh, clinician burnout as being a, a big issue that we have to face and deal with. Um, it, it's, yeah, the, I mean, certainly I'm not nearly as close to it as you are, but certainly on the staffing side, it seems, I, I, I think um, there's a major healthcare based out of Columbus that we work with. Um, and one of the things that they, I think it was for every open job, there was 0.6 nurses applying, which is one of the first times in history that that number is less than one, right? And and I mean, what a what a, a insane challenge. Um, obviously, the work just gets more and more important as time goes on. But what a what a remarkable challenge. Um, obviously. COVID created a lot of people who started thinking they were maybe more experts than what they should have been just because of what they would quickly read and not getting political at all. But what do you think is like, I, and I say that because I think the healthcare, I think healthcare in general gets a lot of flack. Like you said, it seems like uh, clinicians are, there's sometimes negative connotation coming back, which whatever it may be, but what is healthcare doing really well right now from your perspective? I think one of the good things happening in healthcare right now is leveraging what we learned during COVID. So I can tell you that before COVID, we had the technology for 20, 25 years to do telehealth, to do virtual visits, but it wasn't widely adopted. Hmm. There was technology over 20 to 25 years to hospitalize a patient within their own home. I'm not talking home health care. I'm talking an acute hospitalization, but where the hospital bed is in the patient's home. Um, however, pre-COVID, there weren't, there wasn't support for it. There wasn't a business model. There wasn't reimbursement for it. And we were, it, the technology was just waiting until this pandemic And then we had to tap into all of this innovation, which was just waiting on the shelf. 
to bring it to the forefront. So I have seen more change in the last two to three years than I've seen in the last 10 to 20. And I and I hope that it's sustained. I think it will be. I don't think we're ever going back to the way it was. But I, I think that's a really good thing that healthcare is doing right now is recognizing that these technologies that feel disruptive um, are scary to some, change how we have to think about patient interaction, reimbursement, how we spend our time, how we interact. Um, all of that change is hard. But, but I do believe that we're finally embracing it for the first time in 20 years. And I think that's great. It's it's so funny to hear, and I don't mean to go to, back to the business, but I think you'll appreciate this. So our software is asynchronous or one-way video interviewing. So same thing as telehealth as far as asynchronous communication or live communication. We're just that in the hiring space. And three, four years ago, when I was selling our product, people would say, that's the way of the future. We just don't need it right now. COVID hits and everybody all of a sudden says we need to adopt video in some way, shape or form. And so we've seen that obviously in the hiring space. And it's just, it's been fascinating to see the tailwind effects. I, there was an article that came out, uh, this is pretty early on in the initial sort of COVID days, but uh, it was supposed to be a three-year implementation of Microsoft Teams for this large corporation. It took them eight days. They figured it out once COVID hit and they just decided we need it. And so it's amazing when sort of when the hand is forced and the need is there, people adapt pretty quickly. And so obviously that sounds pretty similar to what you're seeing in the, the healthcare space. Yes, absolutely. The other good thing that I think I should highlight is that prior to COVID, there was um, not a lot of data that was shared across hospitals and health systems, um, mm. across each other's uh, systems to allow the country to manage in the face of a pandemic. and. It's mm. certainly not perfect by any no, means, sure. it's getting a little bit better. And the CDC and Health and Human Services is putting more infrastructure in place to be able to collect the data. We have a long, long way to go, but we've taken a step forward, whereas I think we were pretty stagnant before the pandemic. Uh, and that actually, that kind of segues the question. So um, COVID might have thrown out this as a, as a data point, but like, in your role as uh, an executive in healthcare, how far ahead are you guys thinking? Is this, we're trying to plan for five years, 10 years, or we're trying to deal with the problems of today? And I'm sure there's a little bit of both, but like when you're spending your time sort of thinking about how to improve uh, healthcare, what, what time horizon are you typically playing on? Does that question make sense? I It makes very good sense. And I think it depends on the environment in which I'm working yeah. in. So I have multiple different roles at this time. I'm really blessed to have the flexibility to be the chief health officer of Starkey Hearing Technologies. Um, so US hearing aid manufacturer. And we just had our strategic planning meetings and we're talking, where are we gonna be in three to five years? I also am an executive in residence at the University of Minnesota Carlson School of Management. and. Mm we're thinking where's healthcare going to be in 10 to 15 years and at children's hospital i would say as the chairman of the board it it has the same kind of time horizon uh maybe more five to ten so it really it really depends on the environment but it could be anywhere from three years to 15 years do you have a favorite if you're allowed to answer 
of course I'm allowed to answer. I'm an executor, right? So I like getting stuff done and I appreciate strategic plans that are looking forward to the next three to five years, because I think you can put definitive plans in place and, and get things done. Cool. What's, um, what's one surgery you've never done, but you would have loved to have done in your career? Oh, wow. Well, I'm not a surgeon. Sure. I have assisted in a lot of surgeries, mostly orthopedic surgeries because of the story I shared with you earlier. And I think that what I, but what I'd really love to see, I'd love to see a heart transplant. In fact, I'd like to see any sort of transplant, but particularly a heart transplant, because I think, um, you know, the, the heart is, uh, so important to everything from our circulation, which is obvious to, you know, we feel emotion in our hearts and to see a heart removed from one person and then replaced from a heart from another body. I, I don't know. I just think that that's such a, it must be such a spiritual moment. I don't think yeah. to get emotional on you, but I would no, love to see that. And I've certainly spoken to many heart transplant patients and they feel like there's something a little different about who they are after they have that new heart. They're certainly very grateful for that chance at another life, but there's also something different about how they express emotion. And I, I would love to be witness to that. That's, that's something special. You'll, uh, you'll, you'll get a kick out of this. My, um, my dad retired as a oral maxillofacial surgeon and he did his uh, residency in Scotland. So he pretty much only treated broken left cheekbones because of right hand hooks at the bar. So that was that was where he began. Is it's a little different than the emotional tie to transplanting of heart, but kind of kind of a funny tie. So. <laughs> Did you ever witness any of those surgeries? Um, I had a chance. Like I said, I stayed as far away from the medical profession as possible. But I had a chance to. Um, I put on scrubs one day and got to watch a couple of wisdom teeth surgeries, which is really cool. Um, I actually like I. I I got a kick out of watching it. Certainly not smart enough to go down that path, but it was, it was, I enjoyed, I enjoyed it for sure. Yeah. Medicine is a privilege. Oh my gosh. It's amazing. Um, with your, with your career, what would be one big, uh, uh, milestone, one big challenge that you would love to solve, whether it's, you know, is a tomorrow issue or 10 years from now or whatever time horizon, but what's one really big thing that you'd love to solve in healthcare? Well, um, what I work on every day is helping people understand that the individual patient is a partner in their own care and um, and they they will have the best healthcare outcome if they're a participant. So the problem I would like to solve is for people to recognize and to understand the process for participating in their care. Um, you know, we make 33,000 decisions a day as humans, right? That's the the generally accepted number, 33,000 decisions a day about what what am I going to eat? When am I going to wake up? Whatever. But when it comes to the most important decision around our healthcare, and the more serious the situation is, we go to the doctor, we get overwhelmed with anxiety and fear. We're, We're given some options and then we respond back, well, what would you do? wrong question, which will lead to the wrong answer. And so what I would like to solve is to change the thinking of people um, and the profession that doctors and patients are are on a level playing field. It's not that 
patients are doctors. It's that doctors are doctors and doctors are experts in medicine, diagnosis, therapeutics, giving you your alternatives, but patients are experts in themselves, in their preferences, priorities, and values. And when those two come together, that you understand your options, and then um, you as the expert in yourself can fit those into who you are as an individual and what's most important to you and what trade-offs you're willing to make, then we'll have the best outcomes. So I know it's a little vague, but I, I wish I could change the mindset of people as they seek healthcare to see themselves as equal partners in their care and then have a voice. Vague or not, I think it's a problem we're solving. So I, I, I love it, but I, I don't know. So. It's, it's amazing. Um, if you had a chance, uh, whether you knew somebody for a 30 minute podcast or you knew somebody for a life and you got to fill in the blank of Dr. Giorgio, help me with this. What would you want that to be? I don't understand your question. What would be the impact you, if you got to choose the impact you had on somebody's life, what would you want that impact to be? Oh, well, I have to go back to the question that I just answered, which is to empower someone to have a voice in their care. So, um, so I wrote a book about that and it's called healthcare choices, five steps to getting the medical care you want and need. And the reason that I wrote the book is that I get lots of calls every day, probably three times a week, Matt, from friends of friends of friends, people I've never met who will somehow get my contact information and ask me for their help in navigating the healthcare system. And I will help anyone that gets in contact with me, <laughs> almost anyone. Yeah. But, but I want my impact to be greater than that. And I, I got into my own head and thought, what do I do every time I give someone advice on how to proceed? And my brain follows a process. So what I did was I put that process down in the book, um, the five steps. And so what I would talk about in the f- podcast are the five steps and the framework that somebody can use, w- whether they need stitches or whether they need a heart transplant to decide what the best medical care is for them. So that would be the topic of my podcast, five steps to getting the medical care you want to need. I love that. That's amazing. Um, my favorite question on the planet is uh, what gets you out of bed in the morning? What gets me out of bed in the morning is looking forward to what the next phone call is going to be for somebody who needs help. So um, I know that it could be bigger than that. But as recently as this morning, there is a 21-year-old military recruit who I have never met that through friends of friends of friends has reached out to me for help in whether or not they can get medical clearance to be able to go to boot camp. (laughs) And they don't know what doctor they could get to to give them that medical clearance and i'm helping them this morning um i get so many questions like that and every single one of them is different and the challenge is different every day for some reason with all of the things that i do and i have a really large platform you know i'm on tv a few times a week i wrote this book i'm i'm at starkey but what i love because i i'll go back to the fact that i love patients is helping those individual people solve these, what to them is sometimes an insurmountable problem. And I, I'm grateful that people trust me enough to call me, even when they don't know me. The military story, I can't tell you how much that resonates. One of my best friends just shipped off to boot camp, but had a period of time where he 
wasn't accepted because of a previous medical condition. And so I, I can't tell you how close that sits to home. And I've got a, I got a call from him over the weekend that he's there, which it's, it's one of the coolest stories. And so thank you for that. That's, that's um, really absolutely. Special. And the physician that I talked into seeing this individual for a consult quickly, it's, um, you know, the way I framed it was to say, you know, you didn't ever serve in the military, but this is one way to give back is to see this individual and if appropriate, give them that clearance that they, that they want. And the question is whether or not he can give it. So we'll see how that goes. Not, could not agree more. That's, that's special. Well, um, I just want to say a huge thank you for being a guest on this podcast for people that want to follow along with what you're doing, follow the content that you put out, uh, put out, what's the best way for them to, you know, follow some of that stuff. It looks like obviously you're on LinkedIn as well too. What's, what's the best way for them to either get in touch in some of the work that you're doing or follow the content that you put out? Sure. Well, obviously I'm on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, uh, generally under ArkelMD. If you look that up, you'll find me. You can go to my website, which is ArkelMD.com and you can get my book on Amazon, uh, Healthcare Choices, Five Steps to Getting the Medical Care You Want to Need. We'll make sure to throw that in the show notes as well too. But Thank I just want to say a huge- Huge. Thank you. This has been awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for your questions and how they evolved so organically. Um, you're really good. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. You just listened to an amazing episode on the Matt Baxter Show. It had nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with the guests that I have and the stories that we get to tell and the smack talking we get to have. So if you enjoyed this episode or any of the other episodes that you've listened to, feel free to su subscribe on Apple Music, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcast. Check us out at themattbaxtershow.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at Matt C. Baxter, Twitter, or Facebook as well too. Uh, I'd love to hear from you, whether it's through an email on the website or whether it's through any of the social platforms. I do my best to get back to people as soon as I can. But thank you again for listening. I hope you enjoy. Feel free to send feedback in any way. And don't be afraid to share the Map Baxter Show. We're very excited to have you as a listener and hope you continue to listen as well. Thanks a ton. Bye-bye.